When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room for this special episode, uh, Teaching and Writing to Transgress, Behind the Scenes of Academic Editing. Um, it's not every day that I bring you a roundtable type episode, but today's the day. This is a really exciting moment because this is actually a roundtable where I get to moderate with three editors of the Teaching to Transgress special issue of 19th Century Gender Studies, which is an open access journal. Um, and we discuss all things public humanities, how um, this special issue aimed and succeeded, in my opinion, to create accessible discussions around pedagogy and scholarship, discussions around teaching during the COVID pandemic, um, creating new communities. Ivory Tower Boiler Room is one of those public humanities communities that um, has grown organically. Um, also, each panelist really turns a lens on what it meant to have such a collaborative experience editing this journal. Um, nurturing scholarship, empowering writers. So even if you don't consider yourself a quote unquote teacher, you're going to learn so much about what it means to think of yourself as a writer or an editor or a teacher, or maybe the intersection of these three categories. In this case, um, each panelist is a teacher, is a writer, does edit. Um, and each panelist wears so many hats. Um, and I'm joined by uh, Drs. Kimberly Cox, Shannon Drucker, and Doreen Tiroff. So I'm really excited for you all to get to hear this episode. Also, I decided that I would record my article that came out in this journal. Um, it's entitled Talking Back to Walt Whitman. So that is actually a bonus episode. So you'll see that there's an episode right after that, after this one, and that's my article. So if you wanna listen to it, it's up there. Um, also, there's a link to my article, but also the introduction where um, each editor, um, weighs in on what teaching to transgress means as a theme for this special issue. And then they each editor has a piece too that you should definitely check out. Um, and check out all of the articles while you're at it. Um, like I said, it's open access, which means this is free to the public. So please share around uh, this journal um, and use it for your own teaching. Um, okay, well, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. And here is our theme song, Lover Man. And then I'm going to get right down to uh, introducing the panelists. Mm -hmm. 
Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is a really special interview that I get to do. This is Andrew Rimby, um, if you don't recognize my voice. Um, but for the listeners, a lot of you probably can hear my cadence right away. I am so excited to present three editors who I actually got to personally know through uh, submitting my own article, talking uh, back to Walt Whitman with this Teaching to Transgress special issue you'll hear a lot about that came out with 19th century gender studies. So I am going to pass the mic to each of the editors. They'll introduce themselves, say where they're Zooming from, and also the institution that they work at. So let me, I'll go in my Brady Bunch order. So right under me, Shannon, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having us. Um, I'm Shannon Drocker. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, and I'm an assistant professor at Siena College just outside of Albany, New York. Great. Okay. And then uh, Kim, right next to Shannon. Hi, um, I'm Kimberly Cox. Pronouns are also she, her, hers. Um, I am zooming in from Shadron, Nebraska, where I work at Shadron State College. Um, we are designated a frontier and remote level three region, which I had no idea existed before I moved and started teaching here. Um, and what else we were supposed to say another thing? Oh, in a week, I will, I will be an associate professor. Um, thank you. Congratulations. Okay, and then right above you, above your head is Doreen. Yeah, hi, uh, thanks for having us, Andrew. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Doreen Tierauf. I am Zooming in from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm an assistant professor of English at North Carolina Wesleyan College, which is in Eastern Carolina. Wonderful, okay. And I'll also say my pronouns are he, him, his, just because, you know, I think that's appropriate since, you know, each of you did it. Um, and yeah, this is exciting. We have New York represented Nebraska, and North Carolina. Uh, and I know not everyone is from those states, but <laughs> just to represent those states. Um, what I'm really excited to ask is just how did each of you maybe find out about this special issue of 19th century gender studies, get involved with the project? I'm sure it might be the same for each of you, different. Um, whoever wants to take this metaphorical mic go for it <laughs> yeah i can start um so i was the uh representative i think i still am of the nafsa gender and sexuality caucus that year and i think i'm still in it because of the pandemic everything got delayed and like you know stretched out so and uh shannon was supposed to be the representative after me and so i was like we're going to do this when the pandemic happens we're going to just do this together and like kind of keep the caucus alive and uh we decided to do one of those unconference uh, panels that NAFSA had launched NASA, uh, last year. NAFSA is the North American Victorian Studies Association, and they have several caucuses. Like they have a poetry caucus, they have like an eco criticism uh, caucus. They are all very lively, and we try to, you know, also keep ours alive. It used to be just the gender caucus, and then Shannon and I sort of unilaterally decided to make it a gender and sexuality. And so the two of us wanted to do this project together. Um, we, I think we, 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 we've been, we have been chatting uh, about just doing something like we have a, a Facebook group 
and then uh, we pulled Kim into it because you were also interested in getting involved with the gender and sex sexuality caucus. And uh, then Kim, we decided to uh, do this um, online workshop, uh, um, like during this awful, awful Zoom summer that we all had last year. And then I might let um, Shannon or Kim report further how we then decided to make it into a special issue. Yeah. So um, uh, we had a conference on a Saturday in September, about a year ago now. And it was this beautiful, at least in New York, it was like one of the most gorgeous days. And we had, I think, over 40 people um, from around the world zoom in, including someone, um, Jess Valdez, who contributed to the special issue uh, because it was too early in the morning in Hong Kong for her to join. Um, she recorded a, a, a video for us. So it truly was this kind of global moment. And it was kind of one of the first times in you know the throes of the Zoom summer and fall that was just so invigorating yeah. and exciting. And um, we just got had such a great discussion that I think um, we kind of all decided after that we needed to do more with this, that these were conversations people were really, really eager to have, um, specifically about teaching and specifically about really concrete on the ground practices for these emergency conditions. Like what were some actionable things we could do like now, like that Monday in class, what was a strategy we could try? Um, so that's kind of how we decided to continue. The idea was, I mean, it doesn't really have anything to do with gender and sexuality specifically. We just wanted it to be radically accessible, which is also why Shannon did uh, immediate captions, which took up your entire brain power during the panel. And uh, we wanted to make it about teaching and easing people's burdens. Mm. Which, of course, is a, as we write in the intro, is, you know, a feminist, it's very in line with our feminist pedagogy yeah feminist practice and pedagogy yeah and that was kind of how we came to 19th century gender studies for um submitting a proposal for a special issue to them they're an open access journal so everybody will have access to it um an easy access since it's published online um articles could be linked to we felt that it would be or provide a really useful medium for contributors to be able to like upload different types of documents that people could work with or links to videos or assignments or websites that they might have utilized. Um, and the kind of idea behind that was again, to have very practically focused strategies that people could actually utilize. Um, and I think also to start like, to encourage embracing pedagogy, like whatever your position, whatever type of institution you teach at, um, as, as a form of scholarship, right? Like as something that is informed by research and that contributed, contributes to how you do research. Um, and so the editors um, at 19th Century Gender Studies were really on board and super excited and said that that worked completely with the ethos of their particular um, journal. And so we were able to move forward with that. Um, of course, the, the caveat was the, the publication um, deadlines that or the options that we were given. Um, and one was, of course, spring of this year. And then the other one wouldn't have been until next summer. Um, and so, so the way the journal works is that they have like one or two issues per year are edited by other 
people who are not, you know, the main journal editors, because otherwise the editors could not do anything else. And so you basically plug a project, right? So the three of us wrote up a proposal, basically using some of the language from our panel and then making it, you know, into a thing that we envisioned. And then we sent that to them. Hey, we would like to co-edit a thing for you. And they said, yes, that's great, but you have six months to do it, have fun. And <laughs> as we put our proposal together, we also came up with this new genre that we call the pedagogy short, <clears throat> basically having these very short essays that, um, you know, won't take as much research or as much sort of writing time as a full-fledged article because no one had time or brain space at that time to do it. And also with a quick turnaround of the issue, we needed to get it out quickly. So we, we also, just to jump in really quickly, Doreen, we wanted them to be quick reads. Yep. <laughs> um, yes. Some of them ended up a little longer, but like aside from just the time it would take to write, like the amount of time that people had to read was something we were also concerned with and thinking about, um, but continue, Doreen. <laughs> No, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah, and I wanted to really highlight, especially because those listening right now, some are in academia, some are independent scholars, a lot of our audience, um, a lot are just enthusiasts for literature in general. And what I really appreciate is how open access this 19th century gender studies is in principle, that you, know, you type in their address right now and you'll look at our website with the episode notes, and you can just quickly get access to, especially, um, I know we'll get to your introduction and, um, you know, the vision the three of you had for uh, teaching to transgress, but that was probably one of my favorite um, moments was knowing that for my first peer-reviewed publication, it would be in a, a you know, open access journal um, and that it wasn't being confined to these niche readers. Um, so, you know, hence why I knew I really needed to bring Doreen, Kim and Shannon on to the podcast um, because it is really breaking boundaries, um, this approach. Um, so kudos to the three of you, but I, you know, I'm sure you also were all inspired by so many. Um, and I think you know, I have my own question order, but because I love the improvisational way that this conversation's going, I do wanna quickly jump to something that Kim had brought up, which was how quick this um, journal um, was turned out, that it's really not the norm usually. So, I mean, is someone comfortable maybe explaining what your process has been when you've written for a peer review journal? Like what might've been different with the teaching to transgress special issue? I can take that if you want. Yeah, go ahead, Doreen. <laughs> I used to, in grad school, I used to actually be assistant editor of a scholarly journal for the, I worked for the Keats, Jelly, uh, Keats Shelley journal, which was housed at UNC Chapel Hill where I got my degree. And uh, I helped run the show there for, I think, two or three years, maybe a little bit longer, I don't remember. But like I shepherded through s several rounds of issues. I can tell you it takes forever <laughs> to uh, create an issue. And I know Kim also has some hands-on um, editing experience. And it's uh, it takes a long time and usually you don't make the deadline. <laughs> so the fact that we didn't and we made the that deadline for our issue is still st sort of stunning to me uh, because I know there's just, you, you, uh, a lot of, and we'll talk about this a little bit, what the nitty gritty is of, you know, editing, like what you do and uh, what sort of the main work is, but um, you depend on other people to give you their work. 
give you, you know, then you give them feedback, which takes time, and then they have to react to your feedback, and then you have to approve the feedback, and then there might be another round of editing. So it's a lot of shepherding of people, of of holding everything together, of making to-do lists and, and being good about, you know, figuring out what you've done, what you haven't, what you, what you still need to do. And we ended up with an intro with two longer sort of classic, like classical essays that are just in the, in the uh, traditional form, and then 16 pedagogy shorts. And we had, um, like, I think that was our limit. Like we wanted sort of between 10 and 15 or something. So the fact that we ended up with 16 is pretty good. Um, and we could have had even more. <laughs> so it was, it was a lot of people. It's a lot of emails. It's a lot of um, editing. And the three of us read everything like two or three times, like sometimes even more than that. So it was a lot, <laughs> a very constricted time. And the, usually the turnout, when you write an article, I mean, the longest that it took me to get an article out was maybe like five years. Like you start in a seminar when you're a baby grad student, and then after you after your dissertation is done, like you get you get it out. Um, and the quickest I've ever had was when something was solicited it was several months. But it's like um, we, we did we did good. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I think these were all I, I would say all of these articles were things that people couldn't have written before the pandemic. They were all informed by emergency teaching. Even the two longer scholarly articles really drew on the instructor's experiences in the pandemic. Um, so I think it was really a chance for writers to, to respond kind of in the moment, of the moment, um, to what was going on at the at the time. So it was, it was just urgency kind of all around. <laughs> And like Doreen, I have editorial experience in the past. So when Victorian literature and culture was housed at Stony Brook University, um, I worked with Adrian Munich um, and John Maynard on that. And I think time is like the biggest thing. Usually there's much more time from the moment of submission to the moment of publication. Um, and you have like rounds for revision, you have rounds where you're proofing your article. Um, and to emphasize like what Shannon just talked about, about asking people to write in the moment, like they were writing in the moment, but then also having to kind of revise in the moment as well. Um, I think the most that anybody really had to make revisions was maybe max a month and a half. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge, huge thing and a huge shout out to our contributors for making it happen in such a short span of time. Um, I can't even think about what the shortest like two moment of publication for one of my pieces has been. I can tell you the longest has been probably like two to two and a half years. Mm -hmm. um, but I think usually I've been given about three months to make revisions and publishers have been very workable when I've been like, hey, I'm sorry, the semester has happened. Please, can I have an additional like four weeks? Yeah. Um, and they're just literally was not time to offer that sort of flexibility. Um, and so as you know, as one of our contributors, you all were so willing to jump in and make revisions and communicate with us quickly, but that's a huge, huge difference to the standard publication process. I think the time constraints were such, like for the last round of revision, we asked for essays on like a Friday and then we're like, we're going to send this to the editors on Wednesday. Like if you want feedback on Sunday, like that's, uh, we were, we wanted, we, it was important to us that we stayed on time. Also, we wanted to be done with it because we were burned out. <laughs> but um, uh, there is something about it being off the moment in the moment. Um, it might also not, you know, age well, 
like once we go into different phases of the pandemic, it's not going to be as urgent or things will have shifted in academia or in the way we teach. So we wanted it to be also a monument to the moment of the moment it needed to come out in March. Yeah, and I think your introduction, um, returning to Bell Hooks's, you know, teaching to transgress, pedagogical theory idea, um, such a good book, but also just that whole type of approach that Bell Hooks has is also fits in line with the open access, fits in line with, you know, each of you highlighting this urgent crisis of, right, systemic racism, whose lives are being lost during the pandemic at unequal rates, you know, communities. And it really, even just as a contributor, and I'm sure the three of you felt it, maybe more than I did, but I actually thought that that quick turnaround time was the gas I needed <laughs> to really like think about, well, what am I urgently reshaping and rethinking about, say, Walt Whitman or any of these writers? And why is whiteness a critical concept I really wasn't thinking about as much in this um, you know, way I was teaching? And why did I never think about bringing in a poet of color experience and the Black American experience and that Whitman has skeletons in his closet and so many of these writers who benefited from white supremacy um, in the 19th century. And like to the three of you, I am forever indebted because it really did. I had just finished my dissertation chapter before I submitted my first draft, but I was really still kind of operating in this, um, not thinking about Whitman in critical ways in terms of race. And I think realizing that I could just break this boundary and figure out what exactly was happening with my own idea of queerness and that there's a type of fetishistic um, way that Whitman turns to black bodies. I'm like, wait, that's it. Like that's, mm -hmm. it was just, I found my voice. And right, I'm sure that happens a lot with people who talk about their dissertation. You find mm -hmm. your voice away from your mentors or committee members, but it was like, this is exactly the recipe. Like, and I'm sure, you know, it'll continue to evolve, but just seeing how each of the contributors looked at the 19th century or how the three of you in your intro, I mean, does someone want to speak about the intro? Because it is such an important moment when you open the journal. If I can put just a little pin in this and yeah. say one more, like I remember when we read your short and I think we all read it in like span of a, a day or two. And then we we would always meet and then talk about, like we would either text or like like meet over Zoom and then talk about the, the submissions. And then um, I think Kim was the one who would then draft our responses, but we all had like input and we would like revise the response letters. So it's a lot of work when you do that for like 18 different people. But I remember we, we all went to town in the margins on your on your piece and tried to tease out these, you know, complicities of Whitman. And um, like, you need to make these complicities, you know, the the, the mainstay of your of your chapter rather than um, you. I think you had you had centered something else before. Um, and, and then and then you and I also met and, and talked through it. So that's a pretty, pretty good process for, you know, ideas to evolve. Like you usually need a couple sets of eyes to help you. <laughs> that's definitely how I write as well. I like to have other people, preferably my two uh, co-collaborators here, look at my stuff and tell me what to change. Ideas often emerge in conversation, I think. And that was perhaps the 
one of one of the aspects of this that I really, really enjoyed was the conversational and collaborative aspect of um, just working on this journal. Um, I, I know, and like, so one of the things that I really appreciate about hearing you talk about your article and where it ended up, right, is hopefully those ideas will continue to evolve, right? Like this whole piece is essentially a snapshot of where people were like, basically what, like one full semester out from when the pandemic really hit and everybody had to go online like midterm. So it is definitely a snapshot, um, but it's, it's a great, I think, piece to explore how you can how you can look at things from different perspectives, ask new questions that respond to our contemporary kind of global atmosphere and concerns that students have, concerns that people teaching have, right? Concerns that are just kind of coming out culturally at large um, and to explore what that means for how you approach teaching a text and how you approach a classroom. And I will say, like, I, I think Doreen and Shannon and I have actually talked about this a couple of times, but with our contributors and your um, article is a really great example of this, but you all were so willing and excited to engage um, with the feedback that we offered. Um, and that's not always easy, right? When you have three other voices kind of looking and writing in the margins and trying to tease out like what we think is the main kernel of the idea that's gonna best fit with the issue, but then you're trying to figure out like how to, how to deal with all three of those views and what that issue's vision is and how it actually dovetails with your own ideas. Like you embrace that and we're willing to ask questions and we're willing to really be direct in your piece to provide like practical concrete, like, hey, let's look at ways in which Whitman fetishizes bodies, specifically black bodies. Let's look at the ways in which like black queer writers have engaged with Whitman and what that might mean for how we look at Whitman differently. Um, and I think one of the one of the big things that I would say about your piece in particular is you're not saying like, let's just like throw Whitman out and no longer look at him. Um, what you're saying is like, how can we use everything that's going on around right now in this moment and look at him in a new way that's going to make him matter more to our students in their current position experiencing the things culturally that they're experiencing right now. Yeah, well that means a lot from Kim, you and Doreen and Shannon too, right? This is why this is behind the scenes is, but I think as a testament to like, even when I first wanted to discuss all of your notes for how I could revise. And Doreen right away said, oh, I'll meet with you, Andrew. That was even breaking that type of fourth wall that a lot of editors, sometimes they don't meet with, um, especially an academic journal contributor. Um, so like that meant so much knowing that the three of you were so invested to figure out what is each contributor trying to What's their intervention? What are they really responding to in the pandemic? And, you know, in all of these interstitial moments, like there's so much that was going on of, um, you know, trauma, really. And I think right now, you know, Doreen, you said, how will this be received? And that is such an interesting question. Um, you know, and I think we still don't have an answer because we're still living through, um, these reverberations of 
PTSD or processing this mass cultural moment. And, um, you know, I mean, I know I don't have that perspective, um, but it is right. All of this also wasn't free of its backlash. I mean, I don't want to take this now all into <laughs> who are the people who are now going to protest, but against, you know, this type of transgressive pedagogy. But, you know, I know I've had really difficult conversations with Whitman scholars and they've been really productive, I think. And that's why it was exciting, Kim, for you to have just voiced that um, it's not that you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's a, what have we inherited in this literary hodgepodge that's indebted to racism, that is indebted to sexism or homophobia, right? That like there's so much there. And I'm sure the three of you have had to deal with um, maybe protestations or questioning like these types of approaches. I mean, has anyone had to deal with a certain backlash? So hold on to that question. We will get back to it. I just want to thank you all for listening to this podcast episode and for supporting the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We are all volunteers here. And the only way that we can rely on expanding this public humanities vision of having a literary and artistic community is with all of you, our listeners. So thank you all. If you can, please share our podcasts, like it, um, subscribe on the platform you're listening to. That really does help us leave a review for us. We also really appreciate if you can to donate to us, you can donate at ivorytowerboilerroom.com and you'll see our donate button there. You can be a one-time or monthly subscriber. And there's a lot of exciting news and coming out in the fall that we are currently working on a Patreon. So more on that to come, but thank you all. And now back to that question that I just posed. So um, I'm going to say it probably depends on what you mean by backlash. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I, I feel like I've been fairly um, lucky and insulated in regards to certain things, but, you know, I, I know that I've had heated conversations like at my school, in my department before about questions of what types of classes to require, right? Um, what types of books should be taught? Um, and I know like with, even with this particular publication, um, like one of one of the articles received requests for comments um, based on a, a piece that was written about it. Um, I think anytime you're introducing new ideas, like you're at you're at risk, right, for some type of backlash. Um, and it's kind of being willing to take certain risks or to, you know, be loud, be vocal, be different, like amidst that risk. Mm -hmm. um, like stick with your metaphor of throwing baby out with the bathwater, right? You're like, we just need a new bath. Like we've had this bath for too long. Um, there are holes in the bath now. Like let's put the baby in a new thing and just <laughs> see what it looks like in that. Um, and it, it'll change, it'll change the bath experience, right? Like maybe the baby's sitting up in a different way or like maybe there are new toys that are attached to it. Um, but it, it, 
it needs to change, right? It, it can't stay static or become stale. Um, and I think like, especially as people who teach, like it's important for us to be willing to do things differently. Um, but Doreen, Shannon, I don't, I don't know what experiences with backlash you guys have had. <laughs> I can just say that I think our instinctive response to all of this, also me because we are we came out of that very um, turbulent summer politically also last last year. Uh, just you know me meeting with you, it was it's part of our pedagogy. Like if you want to be a feminist mentor of the next generation of scholars, and you know we are not that far apart, you know age wise and whatever. I f finished my dissertation in 2017, so I'm also like a baby scholar still. But it's you know yeah, I'm gonna meet with you. I'm gonna talk with you and we're going to brainstorm together and figure out how you can, you know, I think we also talked about making your piece longer and like what to add and what things to sort of deprioritize. And it's, you know, we're just workshopping. And I think that's, that's just the decent thing to do, especially when the world's on fire, right? Be productive together. And it felt, um, you know, honestly, just it felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think, and I think it created a sense of community between all of us and between the writers too, that really, upon reflection was like one of the only kind of sustaining things <laughs> that I, I personally had, um, especially in like the dark days of the winter, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm even thinking back to like, we had everyone, we transferred all the pieces to Google Docs. So that mm -hmm. way our contributors could actually respond in comments to our comments, um, which a, a couple other journals do hybrid pedagogy has this really kind of open process, but um, even just little things like that really did make it feel like a conversation. I think it was actually rare that we sent back like very formal kind of reports to our readers. It really was kind of a process that unfolded. And I think just emotionally having that intellectual community at such a horrible time um, was really meant a lot, I know, to me. Um, you might have talked about that in the intro as well there's like one spot in the introduction yeah. talk about like making community happen through this yeah it was, it was awful you know it was isolating that that winter was really difficult i think for everybody and yeah um yeah. having you guys like we had this um chat over over text like basically daily daily for, yeah <laughs> you know, for months it was I, I i delighted in it and we were we all had different schedules i, I remember shannon you started teaching relatively late that semester yeah was her book um, so everybody, you know, piped up, piped down whenever they could. And we had different processes. We started with a big spreadsheet and then we ended up doing like the shared Google Doc thing. We started getting in our rhythm. It was it was wonderful collaborating and finding out this stuff together. And, you know, especially the humanities are very sort of single author focused. Mm -hmm. And I, ju I just got to say, like one of the questions you had prepared for us, Andrew, was um, what did we each learn from this experience? And my my, so I didn't really learn anything new. It just deepened my sense that I like collaboration more than I like single author writing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm better at it. I have a lot less like imposter syndrome or like none <laughs> when I work with people who I trust. And uh, I I just like collaborative projects, and we should have more of them in academia. They're so much more fun. <laughs> Oh, that was literally what I had written, Doreen. Like that, okay. that was mine too. Like it's, it was fun, which I feel is weird to say when you're trying to like turn out literally like an issue of a journal in like six to four months, right? Like it's crazy, but it was so fun. So um, fun. Like being it was able to, it's wonderful. <laughs> it was it was really sustaining, right? Like yeah. I. 
I enjoyed being able to engage with other people's ideas and to see like what they were doing and to like help essentially like help some of our contributors really streamline and like find their voices and figure out like what it is that like they're both sharing and kind of arguing in each of the pieces. And I learned so much and grew so much as a, a you know, like as somebody who writes, but also as somebody who teaches. And it was just, it was fun um, and a different type of connection and collaboration than I experience in the large conference settings, which sometimes make me a little bit nervous. But yeah, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna open a Google Doc and write collaboratively forever. No. I never wanna write anything myself ever. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so selfishly it's made me a better teacher just being able to oh, totally ideas and yep, using that, using that, using that. <laughs> yeah, and I think. You know, I don't want to harp on Doreen and I, our first meeting together, but I thought it was a really great lesson too of like me not agreeing with all the feedback and being able to actually say, you know, I'm not sure, you know, if I agree or not, but I'm curious about, you know, how you're viewing this idea. And it was that type of editorial relationship of just growing and being able to voice the disagreements and that that's okay to grow. And, you know, I think for me, that's where, when I heard Doreen, you say how much you wanna to continue to collaborate with writing. Yes, I think that that's the only way that the humanities in our current condition, and especially in America, but I think globally, um, will be able to speak to the public. And to me, what was missing a lot right now in the university is the public, that it feels very isolated. And that's where this journal, like this issue really speaks to, like how I said, anyone who encounters your journal, who's a literary enthusiast, they'll learn something. Like it isn't full of jargon. And I'm sure that was a critical um, decision, but right, like, I mean, we can even start with Bell Hooks's idea of teaching to transgress as an example that um, you, explain it and I'll you know throw the microphone soon to one of you to explain for those listening but I you know agree that even the dissertation which I think is still one of the holdouts of this traditional model might not necessarily be the best way to gauge the future of the university but you know I mean I know people are doing a lot of really interesting collaborative um, hybrid projects with dissertations right now so it is in a flux um, and excites me um, because yeah, I think collaborative writing is so important. It's actually why I created the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, but that's a different interview for a different day. Um, but you also have all joined after one year of this podcast. So it's exciting because yeah, writing really does, you only grow in my opinion with communication and challenging your ideas, um, which is why I actually really love those uncomfortable conversations of what happens when you critique authors, <laughs> you know, because I think if you don't critique it, right, this was Kim, Kim, your point, that as instructors, we should be continuing to evolve our pedagogy. And my feeling is if during the pandemic, you try to not bring up these difficult conversations, you know, your students, someone's going to bring it up eventually. 
And do you have the space to have facilitate that kind of conversation, which, okay, that's a good bell hook segue. Um, so for those listening who've really been interested in this idea of teaching to transgress, like what, you know, is maybe, I don't want to say a bullet point, but what's an easily explainable idea about what maybe Hooks just means by that and how, you know, why you went there in terms of structuring uh, the journal? So probably the phrase that, well, there are many, many memorable phrases, but one of the, you know, key phrases in, in teaching to transgress is education as the practice of freedom. And it's this, you know, really radical idea um, that, you know, although decades old at, in some ways, I think it's just something we all need to read every year. Um, it's this idea that the classroom is, she says, it's a, the classroom is a space of radical possibility, that the classroom can be a space where instructors and students together um, do kind of new radical world making work. Um, and so that was kind of our jumping off point. And of course the, the kind of theoretical grounding point of the whole of our whole issue. But what does that look like when we, when a, we don't have a real, a, in some cases, a physical classroom, right? How can we, um, because Hooks also talks a lot about embodiment and an embodiment of the instructor and the student. So how does that work when we might be remote, when we might be in masks, I taught in a tent for a little last year, right? So how do we kind of, when we're, when we're trying to create this pedagogy just to kind of get by day to day, how can we incorporate these ideas of a liberatory classroom um, under these kinds of conditions? That was kind of our, our starting point. Yeah, and in the end, um, most of our contributors gravitated like towards that book. I think a lot of them read or reread it, um, Most almost everybody cited from it i i think it was a really productive and very invigorating way of, of tackling the pandemic teaching yeah and one of the one of the i think kind of interesting through lines across most of the pedagogy shorts and honestly even the two critical articles as well is that people were like they had these pedagogical ideas and they tested them but they were shaped by how students were responding in the moment um, in the virtual classroom or whatever like craziness the physical classroom held, whether it was in a tent or actually indoors, um, whether people were masked, like the the responding to students, I think, was one of the real interesting parts um, and looking at the ways in which how students responded to these pedagogical strategies actually shaped what those would look like going forward um, and ways in which these specific types of strategies that the contributors offer are focused on creating inclusive accessible spaces for as like all of their students right but especially when they don't necessarily have their students right there um, I think I'm trying to remember which which one of the shorts talked about this, um, but there was at least one that talked about the the excitement that the project generated, um, but what that would look like when they go back face to face because it was a fully zoom class. Um, and so how do you retain some of the positives that came of actually teaching in these radical ways during the pandemic um, when you move back to a face to face classroom space. Um, 
Some people talked about the, you know, interesting like art project confinements of the Zoom boxes. Um, others talked about the ways in which like every student in the class was able to participate um, and to like actually contribute utilizing these virtual means. Um, and that's not something that often happens in a face-to-face -face classroom where participation just is talking <laughs> um, more often than not. So I, I think that one of the real useful things about this and ways in which it kind of um, like continues on in the hooks tradition with that project is what what does this look like in these virtual classroom spaces but also then how does that affect our approach to that actual face-to-face -face classroom if and when we're able to go back in a way that and I'm, I'm totally using scare quotes here but normal right um there there is not going to be the same old normal again right that that has to shift um and we've learned stuff from teaching during the pandemic and so that seems to be, to me at least, the exciting thing is what are the possibilities, um, both doing virtual and remote teaching, um, but also continuing afterwards. Um, and how can that be adapted, whether you're teaching at a private institution, a public institution, a research institution, a teaching institution, um, as full-time faculty or as precarious faculty, right? Or as graduate students, um, how does how does this work for you and for your students, depending on your level of security and also like the college's ethos too? Well, I definitely- that's why we were really- oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Shannon. Okay. Yeah. I was just gonna say, that's why we were really, um, what, one thing that some of our contributors started doing and then we ended up asking every contributor to do is really situate their institution, their context, their teaching context, their professional context. Um, and, and then a lot of contributors, you know, wrote really beautiful reflections on kind of how their particular experience really shaped their pandemic practices. And I think it, it became this moment where people really, really acknowledge that, you know, there's not one kind of homogenous institution, one kind of teaching, that, that it really is so context dependent. So I think that was one, um, one really cool thing that our, our contributors did. And then one thing where I think I remember Travis's piece, our introduction, uh, and some other pieces, we're talking about how we all hope that the baseline basically shifts towards the positive after the pandemic. So towards radical accessibility, towards always considering your students' embodiment, towards keeping the transgressiveness or the radicality of, you know, the openness alive. Not sure, but we'll see where my, my classes start in 10 days, whether <laughs> that's going to be true for this fall. Um, but that, that, that was our hope that, you know, it's... Um, that, that this issue survives, or at least its ethos survives. Yeah. And we were and kind of hoping that, you know, the fall will be the end of the pandemic, but no. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I, I unfortunately, I think our issue is still, still relevant. I think there's still yeah. a lot of hybrid and remote classes this fall, so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that, right, when Kim used scare, scare quotes, that, um, right, that whole idea of normal, mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's so many writers who've critiqued that idea of, you know, what are, what are you, um, assumptions are being made and who's being privileged, especially in this kind of vision. But yeah, I mean, I've heard some faculty um, talk about how they just can't wait to get off of Zoom. And once they're face to face, everything will be solved. And, you know, the, na the naivety of it is, 
it, it, it saddens me because I kept thinking that everyone's teaching was going through this type of shifting that you've all demonstrated in this journal issue, that everyone was questioning their assumptions and their um, indebtedness to certain ideas. But I mean, right, it doesn't mean that there's not another side to this coin. But I do think that there's enough of this transgressive pedagogy and these discussions that, um, you know, some ideas are going to be challenged now. Actually, I would say everything is, um, everything is being challenged, that there's not just this blanket statement of an assumption of how you teach. And I think that's important, um, especially as I go into what I'm just calling my hybrid teaching, because um, even though I'll be face-to-face, -face, I'm still considering it a type of hybrid um, classroom. And yeah, so, oh, and I know when Shannon, you were talking, it just sparked my memory that I can't let this go until, you know, later in the day when I'll be upset that I never asked it, which is just, you know, what kinds of responses are maybe each of you getting about the issue? Uh, maybe it's from family, friends, fellow colleagues, um, you know, those you just share the article with. Is there, you know, anything you'd want to share right now about how it's being received? I'll say our, our readers were so supportive. The day it came out, it was just really, really exciting um, that there's, you know, a lot of people were kind of tweeting and um, reading it. I hope it was immediately useful to people. Um, I know my family members um, definitely read like parts of the journal and found them more accessible too, because, you know, as even though it's housed in 19th century gender studies, I would actually say very few of the pieces are Victorianist 19th century focus. They're, they're really, you know, teaching pieces. So I think that kind of um, accessibility um, made it perhaps more readable than some of our other work <laughs> in our field. Yeah, I shared uh, the news that it came out with, you know, marketing at my school and my provost, and uh, they circulated a little bit. And I'm going to, I also work for the teaching and learning center at my school, and I've offered using it for workshops and for sort of as an idea generator. So it's, it's, I hope we can, we can use it to sort of circulate ideas. I have a close friend from grad school whose um, primary teaching area is composition um, and rhetoric, and she found many of the articles to be really interesting and useful. Um, I know I've started including um, Alex Milsom's essay in my grammar and linguistics classes, which has generated some really interesting discussion, even though they were all online classes. Um, I will also say that like there are a number of essays in here. So Travis's piece, um, Doreen's piece, Amanda's piece that have shaped my approach to syllabus writing for the fall, which also starts terrifyingly in like 10 days. Um, and also my approach to designing assignments um, and thinking about how I'm constructing classroom readings and other things. Um, so really like the, so far, the majority of responses have been very positive. And I think part of that is the, the practicality of them and the kind of accessible language, um, not just full of 
jargon, which has a place and is useful, um, but not necessarily when you're looking for like concrete, how do I do this though? Um, <laughs> where it's, it's nice to have it be just more straightforward, like you're chatting with a friend on Zoom. Um, yeah. Which is why I'm going to be including your introduction when I teach my Whitman's Multitudes course to kind of springboard when I'm also going to have my students read Toni Morrison's intro to playing in the dark, which I now just call the canonical text for the 19th century, especially in American literature. But yeah, I mean, right, and Bell Hooks is teaching to transgress. I hope to have my students read a little of that because it is such an accessible, but also polemical and always relevant um, text. And, oh, this has been so exciting. I mean, I can't, and with our listeners not knowing, I'm also wearing an Oscar Wilde shirt. So <laughs> Wilde is always in the background, um, which, you know, could also be kind of disturbing to some people, <laughs> um, but we won't go too far into that uh, conversation. Um, I mean, is there anything else you think that I haven't asked or you've just really wanted to address during the interview? Kim's book is coming out soon. Yes, yes, please. So Kim, when is your book coming out? Um, so it's available for pre-order, but it's officially, it's official publication date is September 6th. Oh, good. And what is the title? Um, Touch, Sexuality, and Hands in British Literature, 1740 to 1901. So it's very straightforward. Dissertation defense when she presented, right? I'm sure what makes up a lot of the book, but you're, um, you know, um, thinking through with touch. And I remember a lot about masturbation, and um, it was very exciting. It was probably, it was my first defense too. So it set the good, it's interesting one to have attended as a first defense for sure. Yeah. Well, it set the stage for knowing where I could go with my dissertation. So I appreciate that. And, um, you know, appreciate meeting Kim during one of the first days I ever stepped foot at Stony Brook. So, you know, thank you, Kim, for, you know, always being a mentor to me um that meant a lot and so especially all of the victorian community there um and yeah some really good people at stony brook in the graduate community um, yeah yeah so ah uh, well this is needed i am so glad to have had the honor to get to just moderate this round table um and also how can everyone follow you maybe um, if each of you want to go around your social media handles, um, anything else that you would want listeners to know about you, to follow you. So Shannon. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at S Drucker, my last name, D-R-A-U-C-K-E-R. -E good, good. Okay. Doreen. I'm on Twitter at Dolorimeter, um, but I'm also locked down because I've had weird stalking moments. So you have to like request my permission <laughs> okay so just let Doreen know that you're yeah. <laughs> an avid ivory tower boiler room fan <laughs> but you know say I appreciated this episode make sure you know just specify what <laughs> what's going on uh, and then Kim so my twitter handle is at dr k cox so c-o-x 
Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't know what my permissions are. I probably should, but I'm terrible at some of that stuff. I don't have Instagram, although I feel like I should. I feel like that's a whole place that my students love, but I just, I'm never on. Though my cats would be very good photos to utilize. I'm told the young ones are not on Instagram anymore. It's the same with Facebook. Yeah, they're, they're my just, students are all on TikTok. They're all on TikTok. Yeah, we all need I to have create not a done TikTok. That. <laughs> I just started learning. A few months ago, I created an Instagram and I am obsessed. Like it's become my favorite tool now. Um, yeah, but we'll talk about it, Kim. I'll give you some <laughs> reasons yeah, why I like it so pointers. much. Yeah. TikTok may be a little bit more tricky, but also very fun. Like 20 second, like little, like critical or teaching moments maybe. I have no idea what that would look like, but. Yeah, and you could do some fun voiceovers with different authors. So maybe that's our next project is, I mean, I was going to ask, would all of you next year had a journal issue like you did in the spring like would you be quick to again you know do a journal issue if someone approached you right now or would you want to wait a little no i'd do it again <laughs> i'm yeah. actually I, I'm, I'm preparing an edited collection right now i just really like collaborative work. oh good good okay so that's a that's a call uh to arms so if anyone's listening right now we have very excited <laughs> academic editors who are ready um and also if anyone is out there who can help us with tiktok we'll set up a 19th century gender studies tiktok so that's another call well thanks to doreen kim shannon and to the listeners um we hope you all are staying safe and healthy out there all right let's put a bookmark in this you've been listening to the ivory tower boiler room i'm adam katz co-creator and editor-in-chief. We've also got Andrew Rimby, co-creator and executive director, Mary DePippi, chief contributor, Erica Grimay, media director, and Jaren Busta, our head of marketing. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We have a website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. And if you have any interview requests, or creative writing submissions, or any sort of feedback, we would love for you to email us. Uh, special thanks to our sponsor, Words Matter Bookstore in Pittman, New Jersey. That's a suburb of Philly. I didn't know that either. And now here's Loverman, performed by Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames.